you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 1? Um, if you don't have a Bible, you should see one in the pew in front of you. And this will be an especially important week just to keep that open throughout the message. Because last week, we did 50 minutes on just the opening verse. Today, we're going to cover the rest of the chapter. So I hope you brought a snack. Uh, might be here for a while. Uh, I'm kidding, sort of, I hope. We'll see. Uh, seriously, we've got a great chapter of the Bible ahead of us today, and I'll set it up for you this way. Um, when I married Karen, I was introduced to a whole new world, uh, in a lot of ways, actually. Um, particularly, what I have in mind right now is culinary. I was introduced to a new culinary world when I met this woman. Karen, um, if you don't know her background, grew up in a home where uh, they'd go to China every summer to visit family. Um, and so Karen is what you might call cultured. Uh, and so when I met Karen, she started taking me some wild places, like where they were cutting up meats I've never seen before. And um, Karen, and, and, and then particularly her parents, have taken me to some incredible places, both here in the Bay Area and in China, um, or at least so I'm told. And the reason I say so I'm told is because I grew up in a family where when we wanted to do something fancy, we went to Chili's. <laughs> so... Uh, uh, so because I have just no framework for this stuff, when they start putting like raw uncooked meat on top of seaweed on my plate and they say, eat it, I'm a little suspicious. Uh, when we go to these places where I can see the duck in the window and they're cutting it up and it's like, no, this is a delicacy, trust us. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't have a framework for this stuff. Or my personal favorite, when they give you this dish where the fish is, is looking at you, like making eye contact with you. And I'm like, I, first of all, I don't even really like fish. Grew up going to Chili's. But secondly, I can't do that to Nemo. And so because I just have no framework for this stuff, um, what would often happen at each of these places is that I would just punt and go for the teriyaki chicken, um, which, uh, if I'm being honest, wasn't very good. Um, because that's not what these places are designed for. These are some of these places, world-class restaurants, and teriyaki chicken is what they put on the menu for children. Um, and so we leave these places, and everyone's raving, like, man, how good was that? And here I am going, like, I think I'd prefer Panda Express, um, which would be quite rude if I actually said it. Um, because here's the thing. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm the one who missed out. Uh, I'm the one that kind of brought my own baggage and refused to enter in. And because of that, I missed out on the wonder everyone else is experiencing. And for me to argue about the merits of Panda Express in comparison with world-class restaurants would really be an indictment of uh, what a rude American I am in that particular instance. Um, and, and I set all of that up to say because um, some of you, you might eat like Karen and be like, shame on you, we need to work on you, which is probably true. But regardless of your eating habits, I think we've all had a similar experience when reading Genesis chapter 1, where we come to this book of the Bible, this um, ancient story that has breathed life and vitality to every culture that it's ever been read in, and we approach it like a modern science textbook. And so we read about God creating the world in the space of seven days, um, and, and we argue about things like, well, see, if, if that's true, then that means science can't be trusted because clearly the world is very, very young. Um, or others would say, well, no, actually, that means the Bible can't be trusted because we know the earth is very, very old. And we spend all of our time fighting with one another as if these are two unique positions when really, in reality, what both positions have in common is they're ordering teriyaki chicken from a world-class seafood restaurant. And um, they are asking questions of the text 
that this ancient text is not designed to answer. And because we're bringing in our baggage and asking it to answer our questions, which are important, and there should be space for those questions, but that's not the space of Genesis, because we bring our questions and we end up walking away frustrated and going, ah, I think I'd prefer Panda Express or some other creation story, because I, I, don't, I don't know. And so... Um, Really, my uh, burden with this series has been to try to um, help us order off the adult menu, if you will. Um, what I want to do is, look, I know there are some of you um, that you've been just turned off to all things Jesus and the gospel because of a certain view of Genesis. And my hope is, for those of you that, hey, that's my story, for those of you that are there right now, um, man, I, I want to help you look at this text afresh to see what is actually here, to maybe leave behind some of our cultural questions just for a moment to, to see what is in this text for us, what God has for us here. Um, and, and so... I have, a, I have a big burden for you. I, I hope um, that you will be excited to see what's actually in the text this morning, um, that this could be like the day that my family hopes will finally come when I try that sushi for you. They tell me it's going to open up new worlds to me. I don't know about that, but I know about this text, and I know about my life and my experience. This can open up a new world to you. Um, now, for those of you that hold um, to a literal view of these seven days and are maybe a little bit nervous right now, like, oh my goodness, where are we going? Let me just say this. Um, my goal this morning is not to try to reconcile, uh, reconcile science in the Bible. Um, I'm actually quite comfortable that the Bible says things that science can't explain like a man walking out of a tomb after being dead for three days. I'm actually quite glad that the Bible says things beyond what we can explain in our material world here. Um, but my desire is to help um, all of us see the text in a fresh way this morning, because my experience is because there's such a cultural distance between us and the original audience. This is the oldest book of the Bible. This is the first book of the Bible. So this is especially true in this case. The distance is so great. I think even if you love this story, you tend to miss some things that are going on here. And so my hope is um, that whether you walk in here just totally sold out for Jesus or whether you walk in here a skeptic about Jesus, my hope is that we might just lay down our cultural questions for a moment. And I would, in, I would invite you to lay those questions down and to enter into this ancient story that God has inspired to speak to every age and hear the timeless truth that he has for us here. Because I'm convinced that no matter how you walk in here, if you can do that, um, you will walk out of here with a lot more life and vitality um, than if the text was simply given a chronological order and detailed account of how the material of creation came to be. I'm convinced if you can just leave your modern questions at the door, we're going to walk out of here with a lot more life and vitality than any science book could give us. Are you ready? Wow, I was expecting more nerves there. All right, let's do it. Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we'll, we'll be doing verse 2, and we'll, we'll be doing the whole chapter today. It's going to be awesome. It says, and God, excuse me, that's verse 3. Hello. Now let's start, try that again. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Um, now, I don't know what comes into your mind when you hear that the earth was formless and void. Um, maybe you're like me, and what comes to mind is basically just a blank canvas, just nothingness, um, like a watery blank canvas. Um, 
That's where our mind kind of tends to go. But in Hebrew, the phrase is actually a lot more ominous than that. Um, the phrase in Hebrew reads, tohu vavohu. And, and I say that just so you can feel in your bones. Like it's kind of an ominous phrase. This phrase is used elsewhere throughout the Bible to describe uh, the wilderness uh, that Israel will wander in for 40 years due to their sin and rebellion and hardness of heart. This phrase will be used to describe the promised land after Israel commits evil and injustice in the land that brings shame upon the name of their great God and Redeemer. And so God allows uh, another evil nation to carry them out into exile and they lay waste to the land and the land is called Tohu Vavohu. And so recognizing that, some commentators have said, okay, look, something really, really bad happened between last week and this week. Something really bad must have happened between God creating everything and this formless and void, this tohu vavohu. Uh, maybe this is the angelic fall. Maybe this is why a serpent shows up in the garden later spewing lies and leading to hate and evil. Um, maybe. I think that's actually a really interesting theory that would be um, worth your exploration over a cup of coffee or whatever kind of your drink of choice is this week. Um, I think it's really interesting to think about, but I will say I think the primary meaning here is actually a lot simpler than that. Um, so if you're like, that would never occur to me, that's okay, because um, there's a debate to be had there, but the simple meaning, I think, is this. If you read the other creation stories in the world at the time that Moses is writing to Israel, um, what you'll see is all the creation stories in the world at the time start with something like this. They start with a chaotic, wild, untamed space. Oftentimes it is water because they saw how uncontrolled water is. We talked about this in our Mark series. Um, part of baptism is you go down into death into this uncontrollable, chaotic waters. This is where all the ancient creation stories began. In other words, the ancients, they looked out at the world and they saw how cruel the desert was. Um, they saw how destructive the seas could be. And they thought like, hey, why isn't the whole world this way? Why is it only that parts of the world are chaotic and untamed and dangerous for human life? Why is it that there are parts of the world that are habitable for human life, that are ordered, that have a type of beauty and goodness to them? Which is really interesting because I think as modern people, we tend to wonder why there's anything here at all. Like, why does anything exist as opposed to nothing? That's not in the mind of an ancient person. And you need to keep this in mind as we read Genesis. Their mind is not wondering how did matter get here or why is there something instead of nothing. Their mind is why isn't all of life chaotic? Why isn't all of life um, like a lion tearing apart um, prey in the field? Why isn't it all like that? Why are there beautiful moments in life? Why are there spaces that seem ordered and habitable for us? And I think that's actually a good question. See, um, I'm not sure how often you stop to think about this. But um, if it is true that life came about as a random collision of particles, which is kind of the, the main kind of origin story of our day that we're being told. If life was just this random kind of by chance collision of particles that just happened to pop into existence, then why isn't life just random and meaningless and dictated by chance? Now, you could argue some of life feels that way, but surely you can't argue that all of life feels that way. Like, why is it that in this world that there are these moments in life that take on a weight and a beauty and a meaning that make your heart want to sing? If at the center of reality is randomness, where did that come from? 
Why is it that when I drove into the building this morning and saw that sunrise, any morning people catch that this morning? And I see the sunrise, I step out of my car and the birds are chirping and my heart feels like they're inviting me into something. Why is that? Where does that come from? That's the question that Genesis 1 is seeking to answer. Not how did material matter get here? That's an important question for another time. What Genesis 1 is seeking to answer is why isn't all of life chaotic? Why is there beauty and goodness in the universe at all? That's the primary question in view of this chapter, and you've got to keep that in mind if you want to hear its life-changing message. Now, um, here's what I know. Some of you, um, everything I'm doing right now messes with your view of the Bible. You might be wondering, like, well, wait, why is the Bible borrowing from pagan sources? Because uh, there's actually older creation stories than the Bible that start with a type of tohu vavohu. Why is the Bible borrowing from these older stories if this is the true story of the world? Um, but you've got to recognize Moses isn't so much borrowing from them as he is engaging them. Um, one of the commentaries I read this week said that Genesis 1 is a polemic against all the other stories in the world, which polemic is nerd talk for like basically a persuasive argument. So Genesis 1 is entering into a space where they believe that life was chaotic and then somehow out of chaotic came their life. And so Genesis 1 says, you know the chaos that you're all so concerned about at the start of the world? Well, verse 1, there's something that actually predates the chaos and what Genesis 1 goes on to do is it engages their view of chaos and it tells them the true story of the world. And it tells us the true story of the world. And the way that Genesis does this is totally unlike any of the other creation stories in the world um, at the time. If you, if you sit down and take some time to actually read these, which on our uh, website, we have fairoaks.org slash Genesis. There's a wealth of resources. There's a podcast series. If you want to go full nerd this week and engage in those, there's some entry-level resources on there for you. I'll just do this. If you don't want to go full nerd this week, you have a nerd friend, okay? I read some of these stories in preparation for the series. And what you see in these ancient creation stories... Um, that the Bible is in conversation with, um, is all of these stories, you get some version of this. The reason life isn't chaotic and crazy is because the gods went to war and somehow out of their, out of their war and conflict against the chaos, which is often deified, is uh, intelligent evil. The gods were somehow out of that violent conquest able to create life and beauty as you and I know it. Now, I'm not saying it sounds smart, I'm saying that this is what they believed, and I'm sure the ancients, if they could look at some of the things they, we believe, they would laugh at us as well. Let, let me just give you one example so you can feel this in your bones. Um, the Enuma Elish, which is probably the most well-known one. If you go off to college, you'll have a professor say, the Bible's creation story isn't actually original. The Enuma Elish has many of the similar things. You can tell your professor, oh, I'm well aware of that. The Bible's actually trying to engage people that were familiar with the Enuma Elish. Do you want to talk about that? Um, the Enuma Elish, this is the one that people love to study and talk about. This is Babylon's um, ancient creation story. And in the Enuma Elish, here, here's what happens. I just want to give you a feel of the world in which this text is being written. Um, in the Enuma Elish, uh, you have this chaotic waters. I don't know if that sounds familiar. You have Tohu Vavohu. And uh, the chaotic waters divide into two parts, fresh water and salt water. Um, a god and a goddess. And what happens is um, these two gods, they, they make lots of little baby gods. 
And so lots of little baby gods come out of the two uh, water gods. Um, And one of these gods named Marduk, who becomes kind of the center of the Babylonian imagination, he leads all of the other, uh, not all the other, but many of the other gods in a war against Tiamat, who is the goddess of the the bitter water, the sea water, the, the not good water. Um, and so Tiamat was viewed as not good, as chaotic, as evil, but she's also his mom, so it's kind of complicated. And so Marduk, he leads um, many other gods to war against Tiamat, and eventually he defeats her. And what he does is he divides her carcass into the skies and the land, and that's how you got here. Congratulations. Like we said last week, your view of creation shapes your view of the world. Do you wonder why the ancients were so brutal and violent? Like, man, life was chaotic, and then out of more violence and warfare came goodness. So I guess violence and warfare is the way to go. And the Bible steps on the scene with a completely unique story and says, actually, there's something before the chaos. And that something is a creator God who has always been, and I can't re-preach last week. But it says that in this week, in verse 2, we read that above the chaos that you're all so concerned about, there is the Spirit of God, the life-giving presence of this eternal Creator that we talked about last week. He is present over the chaos. He's not threatened by it. He doesn't go to war with it as if it is his equal. But this Creator God, he is present from before the beginning. He hovers above the chaotic waters. His life-giving presence is there. And rather than fight it as his equal, he simply begins to speak. Or you might actually say he begins to sing. Let's now read the rest of the chapter. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. 
And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there is evening and there is morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very what? Good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So that's why there's beauty and order and goodness in life instead of just chaos. Got it? All right, let's pray. I'm kidding. I'll unpack it a little bit. Some of you are like, how long is this sermon going to be? We'll pick up the pace, okay? Um, The first thing, though, I do want to go over before we get into each day is the poetic style of this chapter. Um, And you don't need to know Hebrew uh, to, to see this, right? You just have to be a good student of literary genre. You just have to read. Um, like, do, do you notice the repetitive language? Do you notice the parallelisms that God made this and then he made that and they mirror one another? Um, do you notice the rhythm of it all? Do you notice that there's a, a sense in which it flows together? Some of you are nodding. Yes, yeah, see, this is poetic language that Genesis 1 is written. It has all the marks of poetry, and I point that out because this is um, Bible reading 101, um, but this is also true for um, literary interpretation, and frankly, this is just true for good communication. So if you're like, well, I don't like to read, listen to this in way this will help you in life. Um, It is important to know the genre in which someone is speaking or writing to interpret what they're saying. Um, If I said to you, I'm so hungry I could eat a horse and you go and kill Seabiscuit, we'll all be horrified. Right? Like, the genre affects the meaning. You have to understand what's going on before you can understand the parts. That's why I begin by pointing out that this is poetry. Um, So the genre is important for understanding its points, Um, but I would also argue in this case, I believe that the genre makes a point in and of itself. 
God didn't have to write this story in poetry. In fact, when, you get to, when we get to Genesis 2, which I promise we eventually will, uh, it's a parallel account of creation, and it's not as poetic. It reads a lot more like the rest of Genesis, which is narrative. It feels very different than Genesis 1. So God didn't have to begin with poetry, but he does for a reason, and I believe that, that reason is intentional. I believe that reason implies a choice, and if you just think about it, if you use your imagination for a second, remember the world this is being written. The creation stories of the world around Israel is that you and I are here as a result of violent conquest between the gods. Marduk and his mom had a bad day. He split her open. That's how you get here. This is the world in which they live. And the Bible steps onto the scene and says, no, 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 no. This didn't come out of chaos. This didn't come out of war and violence and conflict. Actually, war and violence are contrary to your nature. This all got here through the beauty of of a poem, through the beauty of a song. This is why, by the way, um, C.S. Lewis, when he depicts Aslan as creating Narnia, has anyone read the story? Uh, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe, this would be the prequel in The Magician's Nephew. And if you read that first, we can talk after service. You're really, it's, you're supposed to read Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, and, and then you come back and can appreciate the prequel. Um, wow, that was very niche. I just realized there. Uh, uh, Aslan, this is the Jesus figure, when he's creating the world in C.S. Lewis's great literary masterpiece, he sings it into existence. Lewis is trying to get us to notice this, that um, the creation account in Genesis, it, it has the beauty of a song to it. Not the violence of war, but the beauty of song. And I think that means something. I think when you read this, Israel was meant to feel in their bones, hey, violence isn't at the core of our nature. Beauty is, singing is, life is, and there's something more true to us than the violence that often marks our life. And it goes all the way back to our creation that God didn't create out of chaos. He created through the beauty of song. I think that's pretty cool. Um, you can take that or leave it. What we're going to do now is walk through the days. Um, and, and I'll go pretty fast over this. Um, what I will say is you can talk about these more in your gospel communities or in the car ride home because you could spend a lifetime meditating on this. Um, I'll try to spend about 20 minutes, okay? Uh, day number one, let's walk through the days and see what this song of creation is telling us. Day number one, God separates the day from the night. So we talked about this last week. You and I are time-bound creatures. We are so bound by time that we will strain to even conceive of this. But what the Bible tells us is that there was a time before time began. And then God, this eternal, timeless being, he speaks. And all of a sudden, light appears. He says, let there be light. And all of a sudden, you have this thing called a day where at least on this planet, uh, you get 24 hours of light and then dark and then light again, and it is a new day. And this becomes the basic way of ordering human existence. I don't know if you stop to think about it, but God created that. Why is life oriented around a day? Because God said so. And God looked at this, and he saw that it was good. Um, you'll see this rhythm repeated across every day in the creation account. So um, if you're the note-taking type, you'll see this. God speaks. Something comes into existence. God names it. In this case, he, he names the light day and the darkness night. And then he evaluates it. And there's more you can see as you dive in it. But that's the basic structure on each day. Those things are going on. So God speaks. Let there be light. Something comes into existence. 
time itself on this planet, a 24-hour day that kind of orients our uh, world. He names it day and night, and then he evaluates. God said that it was good. So God makes the 24-hour day, and he goes, nailed it. Now, I say that because some of you workaholics, that's your takeaway from this sermon. You might feel like, no, the day should be 30 hours long so I could work 24. And guess what? Your creator disagrees. There are 24 hours in the day, and this, I know it's hard to believe, is good for you. Selah. All right. I say that as much to myself. Day number two. Uh, God separates the waters above from the waters below. Now, we live in California, so this might be a difficult concept for us. Uh, When I lived in the Pacific Northwest, uh, they understood this up there. So let me just try to catch you up on what's going on here. The waters above from the waters below. I don't know if you remember this, uh, but there is this water that sometimes comes from above us. Um, In fact, I I heard rumors it might come today. Um, And, uh, you know... uh, I'm going to stay on point here. There's waters above, waters and below. And um, the, the question the ancients are asking is, why isn't it all like that? Because some Californians can go woohoo when there's rain because we're in a drought because we live in a fallen world. The world was never in need of rain before the fall, so I'm getting off point here. But this is how I preach the gospel in the Pacific Northwest. You don't see rain, water come from the sky until the flood, which we'll get there. Not a good thing that caused the flood. Humans not doing good things. So uh, the creation story is water just comes up and waters the land, centers the world, and then you get rain clouds, and that's how I preach the gospel out there. You you know how it just feels like we walk around in a cloud all of the time, how we're just kind of wet and moist all the time, that we just never see the sun, that it's always gray here? Well, that's not how God made the world to be. God separated the waters above from the waters below. He put this dome around us. So that there might be this dry, airy, life-giving space that we call sky. That we might see that light that he made. And that we might rejoice and be glad. So that's how I preach the gospel up there. Are you sick of the rain? God didn't make the world that way. He stretched the waters above from the waters below so that you could have a bright, airy space in between. And if they'd say, well, what happened to Portland? I'd say, well, sin. Like, seriously. That's, and, and I don't mean just sin out there. Sin in here. Sin causes all of this. We'll get to the flood. It's a crazy story, but God's grace reigns supreme even in that story. But I, I said I would stay on topic, and then I didn't. Look what you guys do to me. I love it when you talk in the sermons. This is great. Um, so, so here's the point. Here's the point in all of this. Um, no, okay. Day number three. God separates the waters from the land. Sometimes the Holy Spirit's like, keep moving. Keep moving. God separates the waters from the land. Um, which is even better than giving us dry, airy sky uh, and the need for sunglasses. God now separates the water from the land. So, so dry land appears, and then uh, the water recedes so that you have firm places to plant your feet. Now, I know as modern people, we want to know how. Like, was it all one massive continent like Pangaea? Is that really true? And then it split apart later. And, and what I want to just remind us is that's an important question. That's a good question. Um, that's not a question Genesis is interested in engaging with us. The point of this text is not how all of these different land masses got here uh, in detail. Um, Genesis wants us to see who created the land, that God is the one that thought this up, that the reason that you don't live like Kevin Costner in Waterworld kind of constantly zooming around, hoping for something dry to appear, is because God said, you know what? I think I'm going to give them land. This is a great idea. God said, 
let dry land appear. The waters receded and the dry land came. And I would just say this, praise his name for it. Um, I'm a California. I love the ocean as much as the next person. But if I, like, have you seen the movie Waterworld? You will go flipping crazy if you don't have dry land to set your feet on. So, so praise his name for it. Uh, day number four. Um, something really interesting happens here. I don't know if you caught this, but on day number four, God creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, if we were very impolite, we might say, wait, how does that work? How can you have uh, evening and morning three different times? How can you have day from night without the sun, the moon, and the stars? Because what we know now is that a day is when the sun or the earth circles around the sun, and that's how you get a day. So how in the world are we counting days before God creates the sun, moon, and the stars? Um, I say this is impolite. Hopefully you're tracking with me why. This is like asking for teriyaki chicken at the world-class sushi restaurant. Um, This is where genre is important. And I will say, I think this is where a a strict literal interpretation of the days gets difficult because then you you get put in a position of having to answer that. Like, I don't know, maybe God was just counting them because God can count in his head and he created it. I'm not here to enter into that whole debate. I'm just here to say, I'm not sure that that's the point of this. See, when you can um, order off the adult menu, and, and again, those are fair questions. I'm not saying it's wrong to ask them. I'm saying that if we expect Genesis to ask them, answer those questions, we might miss what Genesis is saying. If we're to order off the adult menu here, I think what it looks like is recognizing that there's a clear poetic structure to this poem. That in days one, two, and three, um, they mirror days four, five, and six. I don't know if you've noticed this, but in days one, two, and three, God creates environments and spaces. And then in days four, five, and six, he goes and fills those spaces. So day four matches day one. Day five matches day two. Day six matches day three. So in day one, when he creates light from dark, he creates day and time. That's the environment. Now in day four, we're going to get what fills that environment, what rules or governs over that environment. That's the structure. I also put this on the notes, ferox.org slash guide. You can see it. If you're visual like me, some of you are looking at me like, my brain hurts. I promise when you see it on paper, you'll be like, oh, oh, okay. So, so check that out. But what Moses is communicating here with this structure is that God's creation of the world isn't accidental. It's not only not violent, it is not um, thoughtless. That there is... Um, The reason that you find ordered spaces in the world is because there is a beautiful mind behind the world that has order and structure. And as he tells us why this God made the world, he tells it to us in a beautiful and ordered and structured way that prepares us to know the beauty and order and structure of the one who made it all. So on day four, God creates the sun, the moons, and the stars to do what? We're all nervous right now to govern the seasons. Like you're just quoting the text. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to do here. Um, he creates the sun, moon, and stars to govern the seasons. What I said is the latter days, and I'm not the first to observe this, he creates the things that will not only fill those spaces, but govern over it. He says the sun, moon, and the stars are here um, to, to govern the seasons, to help you count. When is it summer? When is it winter? When is it day? When is it night? And, and you might think that's like a really innocent thing to say. You might think, like, I'm just going to put that in a coffee cup, that, that God governed the season, so fall plants for the win. But, but here's what I'll tell you. Um, this is divine trash talk. 
Like, there's no other way to read this. Um, If you know your history, I'm not even talking the Bible. If you know your history, hopefully you know um, that in Egypt, they worship the sun as a god. Um, In fact, in Egypt's origin story um, that's around this time, uh, it's the sun god, Ra, who is uh, the principal creator in the world. So, So the Egyptians believed that the sun was a god, a deity who made all of these things, which, like... I'm not going to go off on that tangent. Um, They believe that the sun god created all of these things. And do you know where Israel just was for 400 years? Egypt. So this requires you to know your Bible. But the second book of the Bible, we learn that Israel is enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. Moses is writing this on the other side of the Red Sea. God rises up to deliver them from that evil And he takes them out of there. And you just got to imagine, they've been told for 400 years, for generations, that that ball up in the sky is what made you, is what created you. And really conveniently, the guy sitting on the throne telling you to work for free and be enslaved to him, uh, he is a son of that God. So, sorry, you just got to listen to him. And Moses writes Genesis 1. He's like, nah, that guy ain't a God. He's just a man. This is why, by the way, the God of Israel was able to dispense with the powers of Egypt handedly. This is why he was able to raise Israel out with a mighty and outstretched arm. Because the creator doesn't struggle when he's fighting with this creation. This isn't dualism here. There's a creator over all. And the thing that Egypt worships is God? That's just the stuff he made. And here's the real irony in it. It's something that he made to serve you. The sun, moon, and the stars were not made that you would give your life and your devotion and service to them. The sun, moon, and stars were created by a good creator to serve you. And see, we could laugh at the Egyptians like, they looked at the sun, they thought that was God. I think they would laugh at us, like I said earlier, if they could look at us today. What Romans chapter 1 says is the essence of sin is to worship and serve creation rather than the creator. So you might not bow down to the sun, although living in California, like, it's a temptation. It's awesome here. Uh, You might not bow down to the sun in the sky, but you might worship the suns in your home. You might worship your work. You might worship a relationship that you have. You might worship your intellect. In our culture, you might worship sex. Like, all of these things are created by God to serve us and to be a good gift. But if we give our life to them as ultimate, we get life backwards. And when you get life backwards, you start um, enslaving other people like the Egyptians did. And all of a sudden, we're laughing at them thinking they're evil monsters, realizing we're fundamentally the same. And this is why the world is so broken. That we, when we get this backwards and worship creation rather than the creator, the stuff that the creator made to serve us, when we point our worship there, it brings all kind of injustice and evil into God's good world. So much so that we have a hard time imagining that rhythm of good, 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 good. We're like, what planet are you living on? Well, it's living on the planet of earth before Genesis 3 and sin and all of this stuff. So I'm getting way ahead of us. We'll get to Genesis 3, but my point is we shouldn't laugh at the Egyptians. That we are all tempted in our own ways to worship and serve that which our creator made to serve us and help us better worship him. And so let's, let's just not get that order confused. Let's not worship creation instead of the creator who is forever blessed as Romans 1 will say. All right. And all of that was in a simple comment about creating the sun to serve us. Day number five. See, you could really meditate in this stuff. Day number five, God creates all of the creatures in the sky and in the water below. So even the seagulls, yes. 
Now look, I didn't write the book. Some of you are like, really? Even the sequels? I don't know. Maybe they were awesome before the fall, you know, like cats. Uh, see, when you guys talk and interact with me, it just, it makes Sundays way too fun. Uh, but here, here's the point. Yes, he created the seagulls. He created all of the birds. He created everything in the sky, everything that will be in the sky. And he created all the sea creatures too. And, and I don't, do you ever think about what that says about the creativity and the magnitude of God? Like, do you know that we are still trying to name all of the creatures in the sea? Like, we can't even name all the stuff that God made. And don't get me going back on the stars and the planets where we're sending out all these probes and we think we're so smart mapping the universe. God's like, someday you'll name all the things that I made. Keep going. Keep going. He wants us to keep going, but he wants us to recognize we're finite. He's not. That the infinite magnitude of God to create more things than we could ever name. I hope you can appreciate that. That when you hear the birds singing, you're like, hey, that one sounds different than that one. Like, how creative is God? Not only creative, but good. That he would give different voices. That he would give parrots to mess with us and talk back to us. And be like, I got you, man. I got you. Like, how creative is God to think all of this up? This is what Genesis is trying to spark in us. If you read several of the Psalms, reflect back on this. And they're like, God, the skies declare your handiwork. The, the birds, Jesus said, if you won't sing my praises, the creation itself will cry out because it always is. That there is beauty in life if we look out and consider these things. So what scripture says is all of this is meant to show off God's creative power. So God makes free willy and all of his buddies. And he looks at it and he said, very good. This is awesome. They'll make a movie about this someday. It is very, very good. Day six, God creates all of the creatures on the land, and then he creates humanity. Now, uh, this one's our day. Um, everything else, we're kind of reading like a biography of someone. This is kind of getting into our own life. So we're going to take day six and make it its own sermon next week, because this is how we got here. This is so foundational. I think we need to spend a whole week on it. So um, we're just going to take this one next week. But I will point this out. After creating humanity, this brings God's creative work to a close. So there's something about humanity that is just the pinnacle of what God is doing. Again, we'll talk about why that is next week. But after creating the humans, God looks back and he assesses his work. And we get the best assessment yet. It is not just good, it is very good. It is double good. God sits back and he sees all the things he's made and he's like, nailed it. This is awesome. This is exactly what I wanted it to be. It is all working. There's no pain. There's no suffering. There's no evil. So day six, um, you've got the creation of the lamb animals. Um, but it's a lot like our picture here where you've got a lion lying down next to a lamb and it doesn't end badly for the lamb. You notice there's no blood in that picture? It's just very good. It's just very beautiful. God looks at it and he says, this is very good. And that brings us to the climax of the entire song. So day six is the pinnacle day of creation. After creating humanity, God's like, nailed it. He looks at everything. He declares it is all very good. And then we get this. Chapter two, starting in verse one. The song runs into chapter two. The chapter divisions weren't in the original text. So we're just going to read to the end of the original break. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, 
God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it, God rested from all that he had done in creation. And the reason I have us go on to those three verses is because, number one, it's the seventh day. It finishes the week. But without this day, none of the week makes sense. This whole um, section, it's moving towards the seventh day where it says it is finished, that God finished. It says it multiple times that God finished the work with which he had done. And so God rests. Now, I don't know what comes to mind. I don't know if you envision God kind of sitting down in the uh, easy chair going, ah, I am exhausted, like you and I rest. That's not what's in view here. And the Bible's going on to say is God's eternal. He doesn't grow weary or tired like humans. So we know that can't be it. Um, what this is, if you uh, read the rest of the Old Testament, is this is temple language. That God rests, or a word you might be more familiar with, that God dwells. Or as we read last week, that God makes his dwelling among us. See, in the ancient world, you had temples everywhere. And what a temple is, is it's a place where heaven and earth overlap. Um, It's a place where the God, or depending on your worldview, the gods would dwell among us. And so they'd have temples to Marduk. The Israelites had a temple to Yahweh. Um, It's actually one of the most like contested places on the planet right now, all these years later. We still have temples today, although in most cases we call them things like malls and theaters and stadiums. But what a temple is, is it's it's a thin place between heaven and earth where there's overlap, where there's beauty and awe and goodness because there's something beyond this world in that place that is animating and giving life and vitality to it. This is why people will spill blood for that land. This is why in the book of Psalms, there will be such a celebration of, I can't wait to go down to the house of the Lord. I can't wait to be in God's temple among God's people because this is the place where heaven meets earth. This is the spot on the entire planet where life flourishes and is good. This is the place that I want to be. And what Genesis 1, what this whole song is trying to communicate is the entire universe was created to be a cosmic temple. That God orders all of these things to be a fitting place for on the seventh day, God to dwell amongst his creation, to dwell amidst it, So that in all of the harmony, in all of the goodness, in all of the times, in the seasons, in all of those great sunrises and sunsets, in the depths of the ocean below, in the beauty and the awe of the flowers and the trees and the leaves that change color in autumn, in all of this beauty, in all of the wonder of the animal kingdom that shows off his splendor and power, in all of these things, these were all created to work together in harmony to be a fitting place where someone could walk into this universe and say, the God that is here is beautiful. That's what Genesis 1 is saying, that God has set all this up to be so very good, to be a place where he can dwell, that can show the creation what he is like. And this is the really beautiful part, that his creation can enjoy his presence through all of the good gifts he has created. So that when the lion lies down with the lamb, we could be like, man, you gave him such big teeth. He's so strong, but he's not mean. He's not tearing that poor little lamb apart. And that lamb is so innocent and beautiful. And I might shave it to like make some cool clothes here. Not in a mean way, but like it's going to be awesome. That we're meant to look at all of this and be like, 
Who are you to think all of this up? You are incredible. You are good. This is the purpose of creation. This is why it's good, 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 until it's very good that the entire cosmos was made into a temple where God would rest and dwell amongst his creation and in all of the good gifts and all of the harmony, we could enjoy these things and we would flow over into glad worship to the one who made it all. This is the picture of Genesis chapter 1. And the reason that this day comes, day seven, right after the creation of humanity. And the reason that, I don't know if you notice this, there's no evening or morning on the seventh day is because what this song has been trying to tell us this whole time is, you know that beauty that you long for? Well, that's because the world is a cosmic temple. But guess what? That's not a beauty external to you. That is a beauty that you were created for, that you and I were created to join in the song of the cosmos. So as the skies declare the wonders of God, so as the lion and the lamb show the strength and the peace of God by lying down together, that you and I as the human, as we live life to the full, enjoying all of God's good gifts, serving us, worshiping him, that our lives might proclaim something of the goodness of our creator who is among us. This is the life that you and I were made for. This is why there's beauty in the world. This is why you long for more in your life, why you are grieved by evil. This is why you long for a day when evil is no more because you were created for a day before evil. You were created for a life of harmony and everything flowing over into um, peace, what the Hebrews called shalom, everything working as it was made to be. That's the message of this song. You were created to join in this song that all the birds are out there singing right now. And and the problem is, um, I know that sounds like a fairy tale. Well, let's skip ahead a chapter. Um, You don't get a couple chapters into this book before that harmony gets fractured and lost by the humans. And we'll get there. We'll talk about that on its day. But what I want you to recognize today is that what was once very good, the Bible explains, becomes this painful mixture of brokenness and beauty where we can look out over the animal kingdom and we can see the strength of God, but then the lion tears that poor lamb to shreds and we're like, good grief is reality so brutal and cruel. We can look out and um, see the power of the ocean and the skies, but then we look out and see that the earth is fracturing and crumbling around us, and we're like, gosh, is the whole world just falling apart? What is going on? We live in this space on the other side of Genesis 3 where Genesis 1 is just a faint memory, and that's why this song is here to remind us that you are made for more than this. There was a time when the world was very good, and here's the good news. There will be a time where the world will be very good again. Because what Ephesians chapter 1 verse 10 tells us is that in the fullness of time, our creator God, looking at the chaos of our world, did not leave us to our darkness, but he sent his son to reunite all things in heaven and on earth to restore the harmony we read about in this song here. And just like he said, it is finished on the seventh day on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, it is finished as he makes an end to all of the sin that separates us from the love of God and being citizens of this kingdom and universe. He says, it is finished. And here's what that means. It means it doesn't matter what you've ever done. It doesn't matter what you've done this week or what you will do in the future. If you've trusted in Christ, this song that we go, 
God, I would long for that. This song, this world becomes your inheritance in the words of Ephesians. That this becomes a, a blood-bought gift for you that no matter how you get that creator-creation thing backwards, Jesus has finished everything necessary to bring you back to this new world that he is remaking, that by coming, he is breaking this kingdom into our world even now. And so the only thing left to do for you and to me is to sit back and enter the rest that Jesus has provided for us. To believe that it truly is finished. To believe that he has put his spirit in us. And so just as the spirit of God hovered over the waters of chaos, so the spirit of Jesus hovers over the chaos of our life. And he breathes new life and he begins to work the new creation that Jesus bought for us, that Jesus is working in the world, and one day the last book of the Bible will close with God saying one last time, it is finished. And on that day, he will do away with every sin and every evil. And for all who believe this good news, we get to enter into the eternal, perfect rest of God where we get to rejoin the harmony again. That is the gospel. That is not just wishful thinking for someday. If you believe in Christ, that is good news for you today because his Holy Spirit is in you and will lead you into joining that song today. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take some time to respond by singing. We're going to enter into the song of creation literally by singing. Um, But my hope is it doesn't end here, that as we remember the gospel, as we sing about the name of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit might stir over the chaos in our lives, in our heart, and um, begin to bring about a little more harmony this week. That he might begin to bring about that world that Jesus has purchased for us to rule and reign in our lives just a little bit more this week, that as we go here, We might have more joy, God might have more glory, and our neighbors might have goodness because of what's emanating from us because of Christ. Amen? All right, let's pray. Um, Jesus, I just said it. Um, we're, We're asking you to make the gospel real right now. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to hover over the chaotic waters of our hearts. Um is, man, we've all had a long week. We've all been in different places this week. For some of us, this song of creation sounds like the farthest off thing that we struggle to believe can be true. For those that are there and go, I don't know that I believe the world was ever that good or could ever be that good again. Certainly not for me. I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to hover in that place to make known the gospel that has changed all of that, that is leading us towards a day where you make all things new. Um, And for those of us... um, who who believe that is true for everyone but us, I pray that you would make that personally real for each of us. Um, I pray that you would would overcome our doubts this morning and that you would, um, by the power of your Holy Spirit, cause us uh, to hear the song of creation, that we might respond in faith to the gospel for the first time or the enteenth time, and that we might receive afresh the joy that you died to bring us, and that we might enter into your song of creation a little more fully this week. Help us in your beautiful name I ask. Amen.